Well, good morning again. Uh, we're continuing uh, to look at the letters of John. So we're in 1 John chapter 1, verse 5 this morning, going through uh, chapter 2, verse 2. While you're turning there, uh, just want to take a moment, and uh, uh, if you're like me, you have been troubled by what we saw transpire over the last week and really over the last year, and uh, what a great comfort, however, that we serve, worship, are loved by an eternal God who rules and reigns over an eternal kingdom. We serve a king, an everlasting king of an everlasting kingdom, and our primary citizenship is in heaven. And for those of us who are followers of Christ, this is our hope. This is who we worship, and this is where our primary or ultimate allegiance lies. Uh, I mentioned the reading plan earlier in the service, and this morning in that plan, it had us reading Matthew chapter 10 and found great comfort and these promises and truths that Jesus spoke to his disciples. I'll just read a few verses, but in Matthew 10, verse 28 and following, Jesus says this, and, and do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Let's pray um, for our nation for a moment and for uh, the church and our response in the midst of it all. Father... We do rest in your promise that we are more value than sparrows. You know the hairs of our head and all the events that have transpired and continue to transpire are part of your ordered providence and we rest knowing that you work for your glory and the good of those who love you. So, Father, we declare our dependence upon you. We declare our trust in you. We do pray for our nation. We do pray for our leaders. We do pray for unity in this land. We do pray that you would temper down the rhetoric, that people would treat one another as those who are made in your image, full of dignity and worth because we are made in your image. And we pray that you would uh, be with this nation and be with the church, Lord. When the foundations around us appear to crumble, we have built our lives not on shifting sands, but on a solid rock. And as this passage in 1 John that we're going to look at shows us, uh, may we be people who walk in the light, not tossed to and fro by the hysteria going on around us, but living and proclaiming the eternal king of the eternal kingdom and the hope found in him, Jesus Christ. We love you, and it's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. All right, our passage, as I mentioned this morning, is 1 John, uh, verse 5, 
through 2.2. This is the word of the Lord. This is the message that we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. I want to pray one more time quickly. Lord, be with us during this time as we consider these truths. Incline our hearts, open our eyes, give us understanding, and satisfy us, Lord, with your word and with your promises. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Uh, What do you do with your sin? What do you do when you sin? I, I think... Many of us could answer what the world around us in the Western world, our culture, uh, does with sin. Uh, Oftentimes, most often almost, they most likely deny it. Uh, You deny a creator, you deny that there's a God. Of course, then sin missing the mark is not going to offend um, the holy, righteous character of a God that doesn't exist. But even if some do uh, acknowledge some offense, some sin, then the temptation becomes to minimize it, belittle it. Uh, Or if you look around the the world around us, um, there might be some acknowledgement of sin, but it's it's very quick. It's far and few between. But then they're very quick to point out the sins in everyone else. A lot of virtue signaling and pointing and all of that. And oftentimes as well, we talk about sin, uh, the culture around us is very quick to point out sins in others, but sins are issues, things wrong that God doesn't necessarily say are sin. God's Word doesn't say are necessarily wrong. I mean, that, this is how the world around us responds to sin. And yet, for the Christian, one of the things that sets us apart from the world, one of the marks of a true follower of Christ, a genuine follower of Christ is when we acknowledge our sin, acknowledge that our sin is incompatible with the holy character of God. And yet, even for the Christian, it's very easy for us to succumb to the temptation to deny sin in our lives or to belittle or minimize sin in our lives or to point out the speck in our brother or sister's eye while the log is protruding out of our own, or to call things sin that God doesn't call sin in the lives of others. John, in his letter, he's going to talk about, and particularly in our passage, how we as followers of Christ, what we do with our sin, how we confess our sin, How we live in light of God's forgiveness of our sin are all 
vital characteristics and marks of our walk with the Lord. To say it another way, a little more succinctly, since God is light, we are not to walk in darkness, but to walk in the light. One of the unique features of uh, John's letters is that uh, he kind of makes these, these themes and then he, he circles them. It's not like a linear logical argument. It doesn't read like, like Paul's letters, for instance, where, but, but John kind of states a point, he circles it, then he goes to another point, another point, then he goes back and circles the first point again, but goes, hit, hits a little nuance to it, a little different aspect of it, goes a little deeper into it, and it's a bit of, of circular um, how he addresses it. And one of the main themes of his letter is that the Christian uh, should have confident assurance in their fellowship with God. John doesn't want Christ followers to have a false assurance. He wants us to have assurance, but not a false assurance. He wants us to have a confident assurance in our fellowship with God. And so, um, what you see in this letter, are there are these, these three tests, evaluative tests almost, to evaluate whether we um, do, in fact, have fellowship with God. And there's a bunch of different ways to categorize them. I'm going to use some, some common ways. But, but these three tests are, could be called the doctrinal test, the moral test, and the social test. The doctrinal test being, do you actually believe the truth about who Jesus is and what Jesus accomplished? A, a correct understanding of the truth and the doctrine test. The moral test would be a little bit what we're looking at today, um, living a life that's consistent with your profession. A good tree produces good fruit, uh, bearing fruit in keeping with your uh, repentance. And then lastly, that social test is, is this idea of how we love one another, how we live interdependently with other brothers and sisters in the Lord. And so, John, throughout his letters, in order to give confident assurance to followers of Christ, he's going to have the church and Christ's people evaluate, based on these tests, whether they are sincere or genuine followers of Christ or not. Now, our section starts with this in verse 5. This is the message that we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. So John's saying this isn't a new, uh, this is a message that we made up. This is the message we've heard from him, who? Jesus. And we've proclaimed it to you. And part of it is this God is light. That's a massive statement about the character of God. God is light. There's an intellectual component to that and a moral component to that. Intellectually, God is light. It means that God is truth. But there's a lot of truth claims out there these days, so you almost have to qualify it. God is true truth or whole truth. The, the counterpart to truth would be ignorance or error. And then there's a moral component to the statement, God is light, that God is absolute purity, holiness, and the opposite of that would be darkness and evil. But it's just not enough for John to state it positively, God is light. He wants to make the point emphatically. So he says, God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. Literally in the Greek, it reads, darkness in him is none at all. Emphatic. No darkness whatsoever. No error to that truth and no blemish to that purity. 
Uh, right now, I have these, these two big spotlights shining right there. Um, it emphasizes my pale and pasty skin, but hey, all of us in January in Syracuse, for the most part, have pale and pasty skin. Anyway, and if I were to, I'm not going to do it, but if I were to just stare at that spotlight over there and just look at it for about five seconds, you know what I wouldn't find? I wouldn't find any darkness. I'd see a lot and a lot of light. I also wouldn't be able to see for the rest of the morning because I'd keep seeing spots and light uh, for the rest of the morning. I mean, the, the, the idea being that if you stared into, and these light bulbs won't do it justice, but if you, if you stare into a light, you remove the lampshade, look into it, you're not finding any darkness. Now, as I say that, there's probably some SU student here or someone who graduated with a science degree that's going to tell me like on a molecular level there might be some darkness. I'm not interested in that. You get the point that if you stare at a light, you're just going to see brightness and, and light and no darkness at all. And that's what John is trying to emphasize here, that in God, there is no falsehood, failure, or fault. In God, there is no deceit, deviation, or dishonesty. And when we think about who we worship, where we fix our gaze, particularly in the midst of everything going on around us, you think of the politicians, you think of the grandstanding, you think of the deceit, you think of the falsehoods, you think of the failures. But our eyes, as followers of Christ, turn to one who has none of that, no falsehood, no failure, no deviation, no dishonesty. Politicians are not light in this extreme sense. Science is not light in this extreme sense. The Constitution, as great as that is, is not light in this ultimate or primary sense, the way that God is, everything else pales in comparison to God, who is light. And then part of the, how the flow of, of logic goes for John is, is that since God is light and we are followers of Him, we then are to also walk in light to reflect God's light to the world. So he continues then with these, uh, you, you have these like three couplets or, or pairs almost where he's going to say the negative and then a positive as to what it looks like then to walk in the light and, and what we are to do with our sin. In verse 6, if... We say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness. We lie and do not practice the truth. If we're going to be people of the light, then we need to walk in the light. And uh, if we say we have fellowship with him while we're walking in darkness, we're liars. We're talking the talk, but we're not walking the walk, to put it in a cheesy way. Now, two terms that are important in understanding this. One would be fellowship and the other is walk. Fellowship probably stating the obvious, but fellowship uh, means this, this close association, this close mutual relationship or uh, involvement. And uh, the emphasis here is on relational closeness, fellowship, relational intimacy with 
the Lord. It's this picture of something relationally that is active and, and vibrant. It's not a, a static thing, and it's not, in this sense, primarily even a positional thing. The positional thing, uh, the fact that we are now sons and daughters, co-heirs with Christ, that allows us to have the fellowship, the intimacy, the vibrancy, the, the active, close, mutual relationship with the Lord. That, that's what he's getting at with, with fellowship which is a key part uh, to the whole letter, understanding that. And then he says walk. Now, walking uh, is a behavior, it's a conduct, it's a lifestyle. It's something that is characteristic of your life. It's some pattern or habit or way in which you live. And so when he says if we, if we say we have fellowship with God, we say we have close, relational, vibrant, active, growing relationship with the Lord while we live in, you know, while we walk in darkness, meaning... We live in regular, habitual, or ongoing, unconfessed, unrepentant sin. We lie and do not practice the truth. He's not talking about the one-off sins. He's not talking about, like, he's not talking about sinless perfection. He acknowledges that followers of Christ are going to sin. We'll see that in a moment. But for those professing followers of Christ who live in regular, habitual, unconfessed, unrepentant sin, their profession or their actions are inconsistent with their profession of faith, the claim to have fellowship with God. Uh, Before the pandemic, I would work out, exercise five, six days a week at Planet Fitness. And so typically in a normal year, I mean, this month, the place would be absolutely packed and you wouldn't find an elliptical or treadmill or anything like that. One of the funny things, uh, I'm not sure if they still do this, but at least they used to do uh, at Planet Fitness was uh, once a month, and they would promote this, they would uh, bring in pizza for everyone. That was, you sign up and once a month you get, you get pizza. And it was always funny to me. I think it was like the third Thursday of the month or something like that. But if you're exercising there that afternoon and you see four or five tables just stacked with pizza pies and the tables are surrounded with people and just eating, 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 and you, just the, the treadmills, the ellipticals, all the, uh, the bench press, all that stuff wide open. Everyone is around the tables eating pizza. And I, I think of that when, you know, your, your actions are, are inconsistent with your profession. Like you're at the gym, you say you have this New Year's goal, you want to lose weight, you want to eat healthy, and yet you're scarfing down that fifth slice of pizza and you're still going to eat dinner at home later on. Now, it's a brilliant marketing strategy, uh, and it's a brilliant, like, strategy to keep people as members. Like, you're never going to reach that goal if you're always eating pizza. And the members like it because, yeah, I just, you know, ran the treadmill for 20 minutes, and now I eat pizza, and it's, you, like, justify it somehow. But that's what I think of when you, uh, you say one thing, but your actions are saying something else. Well, in a much more serious way, that is what John is getting at. He's saying that there's many in this church who are claiming to have a close, vibrant relationship with the Lord, yet they are living in unconfessed, unrepentant, regular, and habitual sin. Sin is always a barrier to fellowship with God. For what fellowship can light have with darkness. But now he's going to contrast that in verse 7. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. 
So one of the marks of a follower of Christ is that we are to regularly live lives that reflect God's holiness. We're to live morally upright lives. We're to continue to conform and mature to the image of Christ. He says, and when we walk in the light, he says that there's two results of that. One, we have fellowship with one another, and two, the blood of Jesus' Son cleanses us from all sin. Now, the first one, we have fellowship with one another. You almost expect the logic to go, um, if we walk in the light, then we'll have fellowship with God. That's what you expect him to say. But John takes it a step further and says, no, we have fellowship with one another. He assumes we have fellowship with God, and because we have fellowship with God, then we have fellowship with one another. The reason we have fellowship with one another is because we have fellowship with God. We have fellowship with God when we walk in the light. That's kind of the the logic here. And same term, fellowship with one another, it presupposes, and John's going to talk more about this in his letter, and we'll we'll discuss it in later weeks, but it presupposes a vibrant, healthy, uh, active relationship with other followers of Christ, that that is a blessing and a protection for you and I in Christ. Our faith is very personal, but it's not intended to be individualized or private or isolated, which is really difficult in the midst of a pandemic, which might say like each of us then should still try to get plugged into a missional community or a formation group, even if it's via Zoom. And then he says, and the blood of Jesus' son cleanses us from all sin. Now, it's important to note that, that walking, cleansing, these are present tense verbs. They're ongoing activities. So he's not saying that if we walk in the light that that earns our salvation. He's not saying that if we walk in the light that that gives us some moral cleansing before God and we get more of God's favor. That is not what he's saying. But what he is saying is that the blood of Jesus is capable of cleansing us even when we sin as believers. That God is working in our lives daily through the power of the Holy Spirit to make us more and more like Christ. And the more we walk in the light, the more we begin to look like the light. The more we submit to Christ's lordship, the more we look like Christ. The more we pursue God relationally, the more we will reflect his holy character. Another way to say it, walking in the light equals more light. The blood of Jesus continues to purify us, cleanse us, draw us closer to him relationally. The next pair, verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So if we deny our sin, or we belittle our sin, or minimize our sin, John says we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. We trick ourselves into thinking that our sin isn't that big of a deal. Now, the scriptures teach us, I think of Jeremiah 17, 9, that uh, our hearts are deceptively wicked. Few are better deceiving ourselves than ourselves. You are the shadiest person you know. And I'm the shadiest person I know. And it's so easy to trust our rationalizations, our justifications, our own determinations about our attitudes, our mindsets, our activities, our lifestyles. 
But John is saying that, no, we need the light, the truth, to reveal those things to us. Another way to say it is we cannot see ourselves accurately apart from the light, the truth of God's revelation. The only way we're going to see ourselves accurately, wholly, completely, is to walk in a vibrant, healthy relationship with the Lord. And oftentimes, most often, that is going to involve regular, consistent amounts of God's truth, His Word. We live in an age where our deceptive hearts are celebrated, and we call it our truth or your truth or being true to yourself or working on a better version of yourself. And there might be grains of truth in that, but ultimately, fundamentally, a mark of a follower of Christ is someone who allows the light, God's light of His truth to reveal who we are in light of who He is. That's what light does. It reveals things that were formerly hidden. Uh, I went to undergrad at Florida Gulf Coast University uh, in southwest Florida, and uh, the dormitories there, they were more like apartments, and each of us had our own room, and uh, I lived with three other guys. There was four of us total in this apartment, and uh, and we shared some bathrooms. So we had two bathrooms in the apartment, one on each side, and there was like a vanity area in between. Um, There was a sink there, and six, eight light bulbs, vanity, all that stuff. And um, and what would happen is we would all get ready there, whatever. Well, uh, light bulbs would burn out in that vanity, probably because we never turned the lights off. Our parents weren't there to do it for us. And so we just left them on all the time. And by the way, no one told me one of my primary roles as a father would just be to turn out lights all the time in my house. It's a full-time job. So lights were on all the time. So throughout the school year, um, those bulbs would burn out. And we were poor college students, so we never replaced them. And so eventually near the end of the school year, um, all of us would just be at that one point in the sink where the one light bulb was working. And that's where we'd shave and we'd do our hair because back then I had hair and all that stuff, brush our teeth. And then a couple days before we had to move out, we were responsible for replacing all that. If we didn't replace the bulbs, then the school would charge us, you know, 10 times the amount or something like that. So two days before we moved out and got the rooms inspected and all of that, we would replace all the bulbs. And first of all, it was just amazing to see all that light. But then you direct your eyes down from the vanity light bulbs to the sink, and it was the nastiest thing you'd ever seen in your entire life. I mean, all the gunk, all the goop, all the filth, particularly around that one area where all of us got ready the last three months of the school year, I mean, it was disgusting. And we didn't even know it until all that light showed it. I mean, the only thing worse than uh, the sink area of a four-guys apartment would be the sink area of a four-girls apartment. Am I right? Yeah? Anyone? No? All right. Didn't know how that would land. But nonetheless, uh, that's what light does. It reveals the goop and the gunk and the filth. And that's what the light of God's revelation does. It's intended to reveal that sin in our lives. And there's a sweet side to that conviction. So then what do we do when God's light reveals that goop and gunk and filth to us? He tells us in verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What a wonderful verse. 
This passage is not saying that you need to be morally perfect. This is not saying that you have to have it all together. It's actually saying that a mark of a follower of Christ is as we continue to mature, we're going to be more and more aware of our sin. But what do we do with that sin? We confess it. Confession literally means to agree with God. And then it says that He is faithful. Even when we're faithless, He is faithful. And just, He deals with the sin to forgive us and to cleanse us, to wash us white as snow from all that unrighteousness. He deals with the sin that we might be restored to fellowship with Him. I think one of the caricatures of Christianity is that there's a bunch of rules and regulations and that we've got to follow all these rules and and it's like like moral police. And I think it's easy for us to agree or concede um, to that caricature. I don't think, however, that we spend enough time considering that when we sin, when we live in sin, one of the primary things that that does is it robs us of joy. When we sin, it robs us of the joy and the life and the peace and the comfort, and the delight that is the natural outworking of fellowship with God. And God says, turn back to me, and I will restore to you the joy of your salvation. Even on Sunday mornings, we often have a prayer where we confess our sins corporately. Part of the intent in that is so that there would be nothing in our hearts, in our lives, that would hinder us from praising God, declaring truths to one another, that would rob us of fellowship with one another, that would hinder us from seeing and hearing accurately God's revelation through His Word. And it's a beautiful discipline, a necessary discipline for us to incorporate that regularly in our lives. In the last few verses, verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So when we say we haven't sinned, um, not only do we deceive ourselves, but we actually make God a liar. How do we make God a liar? By saying through our words and actions that, now God, what you say is sin, it's not really sin. We're saying, God, you're lying about what sin is. Or you say, God, it's a big deal, but it's not really that, that big of a deal. Okay, once again, making God a liar, rejecting God's truth, saying what God says isn't true. And if that's our attitude, if that's our disposition, John's saying that may be an indication when he says the word is not in us, that may be an indication that we're actually not sincere and genuine followers of Christ. It may be an indication that regeneration hasn't occurred, that we really don't have a new heart. Now look at chapter 2, these two verses. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. One abuse could be that you use confession as this um, magic formula. Like, okay, well, license to sin. I can go sin, I know. Got confession in the back pocket so I can go and do whatever I want. John's saying, no, I'm I'm not writing to you so that you would, you know, 
engage in more sin and then have this magic formula, this get-out-of-jail-free card. No, I'm writing to you so that you won't sin. And we love the idea of a get-out-of-jail-free card. For uh, My kids got Monopoly for Christmas, and so we played tons of Monopoly over the last couple of weeks. And kids are uh, nine and seven, and they love the get-out-of-jail-free card. Like, they would sell homes, houses, properties, everything else. They just want to land on that chance um, spot on the board that they might get a get-out-of-jail-free card. And if I was a really corrupt father, I would just trade them my get-out-of-jail-free card for everything else on the, on the board, but I only did that once, so... Um, <laughs> We love that get-out-of-jail-free card, but John's saying, no, 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 that's, it's not a license to sin. Remember, your joy's at stake, your delight's at stake, your fellowship with the Lord is at stake. But, still verse 1, if anyone does sin, and we will sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. We have someone who's pleading our case, Jesus, the righteous one. And then in verse 2, how does he plead? How is he our advocate? He is the propitiation for our sin, and not for ours only, but also the sins for the whole world. Don't get tripped up by that big word, propitiation. It means atoning sacrifice. It means that Christ was our substitute and bore the wrath of God in our place. That when we sin, Christ is our advocate, we plead the blood of Christ, we turn to what Christ has accomplished on the cross, on our behalf, and fellowship is restored. God himself took it upon himself in order to give us fellowship with God. Paul says it a different way in 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What do you do when you sin? What do you do with your sin? Brothers and sisters, a mark of a maturing follower of Christ is someone who confesses their sin. They don't deny it. They don't minimize it. They don't point out the speck in their brother's eye while the log is protruding from their own. And not only do they confess it, but they turn from it and they turn to Jesus We can rejoice in Christ's atoning sacrifice. We can rejoice that Christ is our advocate. And may we be a people who are marked by vibrant, growing, maturing, joy and delight-filled fellowship with our God. Let's pray together. Father, thank you. For your word, we thank you for these truths. Pray that we would be a people who uh, don't, that we wouldn't be people who say we have no sin, that we wouldn't be people who say we have not sinned, that we wouldn't be people who say we have fellowship with God but yet walk in darkness. We're children of the light, may we walk in the light. Thank you that you've taken it upon yourself to be sin who knew no sin so that in Christ we might have relationship with you. We love you, Lord. We thank you for these truths. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen.